Hello and welcome to episode 285 of the Dan York Report. Way back in June 2014, so almost two years ago, I was at the SIP Network Operators Conference, or SIPNOC, in Herndon, Virginia, where I spoke on the topic of, is it time for TLS for SIP? SIP being the session initiation protocol, the protocol used for much of the open uh, voice over IP that happens in the world today, and TLS being the protocol formerly known as SSL, but the way of securing communications in transport. And I was there at the TL, at the SIPNOC event. It was a couple hundred network operators, VoIP providers, et cetera, people from all around who were gathered there in Virginia for a couple of days to talk about uh, different topics related to, well, operating SIP networks and so on. I was there uh, talking about, again, how to secure them using this. I seem to have recorded it and then promptly forgot about the recording. I found a couple of these recently, and so I decided to put this out as a Dan York Report episode. Now, there are slides that go along with this. If you go over to slideshare.net slash Dan York, you can find them there. They're right there. I'll put a link in the notes for this show on SoundCloud, but uh, you can also find them just by going there. So again, this was uh, it's about 20-some-odd minutes that you can uh, listen to this presentation, and you uh, can learn about whether or not it's time for TLS for SIP-based voice over IP. Here it is. So my name is Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I realize that I stand before you, between you and lunch. So we'll try to get, uh, get through this a little bit around what's there. I'm, um, I realized looking around at a lot of the folks who are new here, um, I would just quickly tell you a bit of my background. I come from, I've been working in VoIP since about 2001 with Mitel Networks um, and Voxeo, working in the cloud side. I've written, a, you know, done, some, done a lot of writing online, done some books and podcasting pieces. I'm also part of an organization called the VoIP Security Alliance, although that organization needs a bit of a reboot right now, but um, this is my background. It's where I've come from. I work now with the Internet Society on a project called the Deploy360 program, which is focused on how do we encourage the adoption of a number of new technologies? Actually, many of them aren't new, but how do we work with them um, to look at how do we get these technologies out there and deployed quickly? And things like IPv6, DNSSEC, some of the security mechanisms for BGP routing and for TLS. And I've been here um, a couple of years ago talking about IPv6 and about what was coming up and what was there. I was delighted that I was not here talking about it this year and that Carl was here giving a real case study. Maybe, uh, maybe Richard, if I'm talking about TLS today, maybe in two years we'll have a TLS case study coming in here or something like that, that somebody else could be talking about it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I want to talk about uh, TLS. And before I get too far in that, I want to just be clear. You know, what we're talking about with TLS is the protocol formerly known as SSL. And in the common case, when we talk about any things, we talk about Heartbleed, we talk about all this, we talk about SSL, SSL. Well, SSL was Netscape's implementation back in the mid-90s. And what actually happened, if you look at the timeline, was in 1999, what was then known as, as SSL 3.0 was more or less standardized into TLS 1.0. They're not exactly equivalent, but they're close. And then we've had a couple of revisions since then. And currently what we use, when you have that lock symbol in your browser, um, you're actually using TLS, and it's probably 1.1 or 1.2, something in that line. And you know, we could get into the, if we really want to go down the crypto rat hole, we could get into the differences, but I'm not going to right now. But essentially, it has a lot to do with cipher suites and negotiation and, and protecting things a little bit better. 
There's also right now an effort underway to come up with a new version, an, a continued expansion or um, enhancements to it called TLS 1.3, and that's currently a draft right now. It's being under discussion. So I want to ask you right now, to Richard's question, how many of you are using TLS right now in SIP-based communication? Okay. See, Richard, it is happening. Okay, there are people that were here. Granted, maybe about a half dozen. But National security agents. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, I want to know for the rest of you, why not? Why aren't you? Customers aren't asking for it. What else? Come on. Complexity. What else? What? Complexity. Complexity. And complexity. Okay, good. All right. You had one over here. Money. Okay. What else? Capacity. Scalability. What else? Vendor support, okay. What else? Nobody's hit my big one yet, I was expecting. What? Troubleshooting and monitoring. Give that man a badge or uh, give you a prize if we don't have any here. But no, when, I, when I've been talking to people about why aren't they running TLS, the two biggest questions that I, or reasons why they weren't, um, have always been these. They've been debugging, network monitoring, Somebody goes in there and they want to go and, and figure out why something wasn't connecting inside the network, and so they just turn off all the TLS support, figure out what the problem is, and then they never bother to turn the TLS back on. Because hey, that way, you know, why bother? We've solved the problem, we're on to the next fire. Right? We've always got to keep going from one fire to the next. So the uh, you know what what we've seen this constantly going, network monitoring, performance, lack of device application support, cost complexity, no customer demand, no one's asking for. Well, why am I here? Part of it is because last year we saw this little incident that happened that kind of alerted the rest of us to sort of some of the things that were going on. And you know, in the security field, we've always talked about the people with the tinfoil hats, right? Okay, and Mark and I have probably both been accused of wearing tinfoil hats at different times that, you know, Oh my God, it's, you're, you guys are super paranoid. You're a bunch of security geeks. You want to do everything. And it's really not that bad, guys. Just go off and play in your little corner and, and you know, ignore all this stuff. But we've always talked about this, you know, the, the, the tinfoil hat wearing brigade. But you know what? Part of what we found out last year was that um, the tinfoil hats were a little bit wrong. The level of the monitoring that was going on by the NSA, by other security agencies, by groups out there, was a lot worse than any but the you know, truly ultra, ultra paranoid. But most folks I mean, thought there was some level of monitoring going on. But when you started to understand the level, the scale that was going on, it became very clear that it was far beyond what most folks had thought about. And for those who have been aware, the Internet Engineering Task Force has been looking at this issue over the last year or so in looking at what, what can be done to strengthen the Internet. And just this past month, they published a document called RFC 7280, which said that basically pervasive monitoring is an attack. And you can see I wrote some text up here. You know, the ITF community's technical assessment is that pervasive monitoring is an attack on the privacy of internet users. And we have expressed strong agreement that it needs to be mitigated where possible, be the design of protocols that make pervasive monitoring significantly more expensive or infeasible. This is the direction that the ITF is taking now 
in looking at how do we strengthen protocols? How do we make it stronger and more resistant to this kind of large-scale monitoring? Recognizing that there are legitimate cases where you need to do monitoring. You need to do network monitoring within your own monitoring. There's lawful intercept issues. There's other places where you need to have some degree of it. But looking at how do we strengthen the internet against the kind of large-scale, pervasive, passive kind of monitoring that was found to be happening over the past year as we started to look into this. This is the direction that the ITF is going. So part of my message here today is to say that as we look at where SIP's going, as we look at where pieces are going, as we look at what the customers are hearing out there, there is more and more interest in where to go with this. And on the customer demand side, we're seeing a lot of action in the consumer space, in people starting to say, I want to have stronger protection. I want my privacy better protected. You know, and so you're seeing efforts that I mentioned from up here. You know, the Electronic Frontier Foundation is doing a lot with their action against um, the NSA, specifically here. We've got, you know, Erle Johansson in Sweden has been doing a lot with his more crypto initiative, which I'll talk about a little bit later. He's got some things specifically around SIP and, and, and protection and TLS in there and what can be done with Camellio and, and Asterisk and pieces like that. Uh, reset the net, better crypto, some other pieces that are around this. There's a lot of consumer interest in how do I go and bring a higher level of protection to that. Now, this is right now. We all know consumer things may fluctuate in, in, the, in that old you know, thing between convenience and security and privacy. Where will it fluctuate? Right now, we're kind of moving a bit more toward the privacy security for the moment. How long it will stay there, who knows? But this is certainly something we're seeing on the consumer side about what people are doing. How many people are familiar with Jabber and the XMPP servers? Okay. Any of you operate Jabber servers or anything? Okay. A couple. Well, within the XMPP community, the Jabber community, they embarked on a project to go and, and require mandatory encryption across the entire Jabber, uh, the public Jabber infrastructure, which is a, a network of, uh, you know, a couple hundred different servers that are out there for, that are people are using in various different ways. And they had now a good, good uh, number of those who have, as of May 19th, they went through a process where they went through several different stage points to where, as of May 19th, they are no longer accepting unencrypted connections. It's all mandatory TLS in this environment. And I put some, these slides will be available. There's some places you can go to learn a little bit more about what's involved with this. So my question really is, you know, given this interest at a larger level around TLS, around protecting privacy, around the things that are here, what can we do? to encourage that greater usage. What can happen out there? Can we create our own manifesto? What can we do? Recognizing there are a couple of caveats that we have within the SIP space. You know, TLS only looks at one part of the privacy protection, right? It's just on the attacker coming into the, the signaling stream. We need also SRTP, as Mark mentioned, to handle the media side. You know, we've got this going on this. Um, our, in our simple picture that we like to show in all of our diagrams about SIP is really a whole lot more complicated. There's a lot of different players inside of here. And generally when you look at TLS as well, it's only hop to hop. It's not end to end. You know, and it can go from one place to another. might, you know, go through a couple hops in here, but it's, it's all about hop to hop. And so you have unencrypted traffic, um, you know, in each of those kind of hops that you have inside of there. And we also know that unified communications or any such thing like that is not unified. We've got a whole ton of different pieces in modern IP communications, right? It's not just you who are in the picture. 
It's the people who are, you know, as the carriers, as the VoIP providers, the voice providers, you're also dealing with the operating systems, the firewalls, the different, uh, you know, vendors of all sorts of different products that are inside of there. But the question is, you know, we have standards. We have a good number of them that are around uh, TLS and for SIP. You know, we could go all the way back if you want to, to the original specifications in 3263 around SIPS, you know, and the components that were there, although that was never really strongly uh, adopted. But we have seen now, you know, RFC 5922 defines how we can do domain certificates in SIP. At connection reuse, some of these pieces. We've got SRTP. You know, we've got the components that are around this. <clears throat> I wrote this slide before our discussion here, and I'm finding out about the waivers, but <clears throat> SIP Connect 1.1 does support or require TLS in its current environment. I think for it, you know, and this goes back to my question on does it mean something, I think it should either have that in it or out would be my suggestion. That's something that a lot of people are going to see waivers on. But the, the focus here, you know, this is a good specification for that. And if it is used that way, it becomes a way you can know this product will support the privacy of users with TLS. It's again, it's focused on that, as we heard, just heard, around that PBX to service provider connection. But it's at least some part of the way on there. We also have the tools. A lot of the vendor tools, you know, provide TLS, and it's already in there. I know we were talking to a couple of us last night about the tools, you know, the, the IP PBX, the IP phones even, that have um, sometimes certificates built into them for mutual authentication. You know, because it's an important point too when you think about TLS, there's two levels of TLS that you could talk about. One is server side, where the client devices get a TLS certificate from the server and then set up a tunnel and encrypt it there. And you have encrypted connection, you have encrypted capability there. But there's an even higher level, which is a mutual authentication, where there's a certificate in the actual end device, which provides an even higher level of security, a two-way connection, an authentication of the endpoint in ways that are there. But you're seeing this kind of support that's out there. It's often just simply not enabled. So again, I ask this question, what can we do? How can we part and you know, see greater TLS there? I do have one other caveat, which is how do we trust those certificates? This is a challenge that we've got right now because as we start to look at this and we start to think of it in a larger internet-based space, not within a, you know, within a LAN or within a controlled network, but as we start to look at how do I connect from my SIP proxy out to yours in some kind of space, how do I encrypt that connection? The challenge we do have is that there are somewhere around 1,000, 1,500 certificate authorities out there. And the challenge with the overall CA system that we have today is that any single one of those can issue a certificate in the name of anybody else, any other domain that's out there. And so we see these cases, the notorious DigiNotar one not too far, not too long ago, but others where people have been able to scam a CA into issuing a certificate that was valid for a, a domain that wasn't theirs. You know, it's, it's kind of scary when you talk to some of the companies that are working with this and, and you know, getting scammed and, and having people go out there and attackers are able to represent themselves as if they are, are that person. There's a number of different techniques and tools that are being looked at right now. There's one, how many people have heard of certificate transparency? Okay, it's another, it's a project that's going on right now that will provide a logging of certificates that are issued that people will be able to go and, and find out are the, uh, are the, you know, is this a real certificate or not. We're looking at uh, some, some challenges with some of the revocation lists and the, and the long, long list and the size of it. 
Another thing I'm going to talk about just briefly is one called Dane. How many people have heard Dane? Okay, good, all right, a number of folks. In a web environment, if we look at the typical web interaction, you've got the lock symbol that tells you that you have a secure connection. You're buying something from Amazon, or you're going to your bank, or you're doing whatever else. You've got that secure connection. The challenge, and if you look at how that happens, you went off to your DNS resolver, you got your information back, you went into your web server, you came back with a TLS encrypted web page, you've got a certificate, you've got a lock, everything looks good. Well, the challenge is, how do you know it's encrypted with the correct certificate? What if it was a bogus one issued by some other, other um, certificate authority? Or what if it was just a bogus one in general? Because users, how many of you, when you get that warning about you've got a SSL certificate problem, how many of you just click through? How, okay, how many of you are, are being honest? Okay, all right. <laughs> All right, you see the warnings pop up. Yeah, you really want to buy them. You need to get there to your bank. You need to do whatever else. You click through it. Most users, and maybe we're just a smarter, savvier bunch in here, but the general public out there just clicks through those warnings. So it could be a bogus certificate, and they might have just gone and clicked right through it. One of the techniques that we're looking at to bring another layer of trust to this is, is to be able to get uh, rid of this, because I still want to knock on my web browser. Looks good. But in the meantime, an attacker, or it could be a corporate firewall, something that's got an intermediate signing certificate that's out there. There are those boxes and devices out there that can go and re-sign the name of something else. You know, it looks like it's all good. So what we're talking about now is something called DANE, or the DNS-based authentication named entities. And what it does is you're storing a certificate or a fingerprint of a certificate in DNS and then you're signing it with DNSSEC, DNS security, so that you can know that this is the certificate that you want people to use. So what happens is, when, when this process goes through, a web browser that supports date, and there are a couple, but there's also some add-ons that people are using, it would go and get the certificate back. It would also get from DNS a new record called TLSA. And what that record has is either a fingerprint or the whole certificate, and it looks at it and says, well, wait, that doesn't match what I'm getting from the web server. I've got a problem here. Now, it could, and this is what those implementation things come in. If it just popped up a box, people would click right through it. So, you know, the people who are doing this today are trying to learn from the experiences before and say, well, maybe we should do something different, like just not let people in there or something. Dane is defined in RFC 6698. And there's a couple different things that you can do with it, which is what makes it interesting. One of the modes you can use it is to say that these, the, the, the TLS certificate that you will accept is only going to be from this particular CA. So I can say that I only want my, the certificates for my domain will only come from this one CA. So if an attacker gets some other CA to give them a bogus certificate, it's not going to work with Dane in the picture. There's also um, one that says, I want this specific certificate that's been signed by a CA. There's another mode that says you could say, I want to use another CA, a private CA, my own internal CA on my network. I want that to go and do that. And then there's also a, another mode, which is a complete self-signed certificate. So I can say that for my domain, I want to use this as, a, as my certificate. It's not CA, CA signed or anything like that. So 
what you're showing are ways that uh, uh, CTLS security can be uh, uh, made even stronger. But, yes. Uh, uh, but it, it, it seems a little disconnected with the earlier part of your presentation because uh, you know there's relatively few use people using CTLS. A lot of people using HTTPS, and yet HTTPS uh, is not doing this kind of function. So not yet. And so the question is, why isn't HTTPS doing this? Well, one of the challenges on the browser side that has come into with the implementation of Dane, one of the challenges they have is that the browsers are all focused on absolute speed right now, you know, of, of getting information back. And so um, they've been a little leery of Dane because, and things, because of the extra, you know, comparison that has to come into there. So we're working with some of the browser vendors, talking to some of the folks around how to go and do that. But what's interesting is other people in other areas are using Dane. I think I have my slide right here, perfectly did. Dane is not just for the web. And in fact, like the XMPP community that I mentioned before, the XMPP folks are using Dane as a way to provide an extra layer of security on the certificates that are being used for server-to-server -server communication and also for client-to-server communication. So they're providing, they're using this to provide this extra layer of trust to know that um, that these are the certificates that you want to be using. Let me um, just mention there is a specific document out there, draft Johansson Dispatch Dane SIP that talks about how Dane can be used with SIP. So if you're interested in learning a bit more about this, Uli Johansson has this draft out there that is now in the group. There's some other ones around Dane and email. There's a document about operational guidance. There's some other ones that are looking at it for open PGP and for OTR messaging. So the work is happening now to look at how do we use this to put another trust layer on top of this. For a long time, people were kind of saying, well, it's not going to happen because DNSSEC isn't rolling out. But DNSSEC is actually being deployed at a higher level. It's happening out there. People are signing in many parts of, of the space. So this is actually going on for that. Let me just wrap up. Again, these slides will be available with a few more pieces around there. I would again ask this question. The reality is people are looking to understand what level of privacy can they get around their SIP-based communication. Now, in some cases, as we heard earlier, if it's on the same carrier network, there's very little chance of it being intercepted. Well, maybe there's not a need for the level of security that TLS can provide. Or maybe there is. It depends upon where, you know, what the attack points are, who can get into that network, and what level of assurance you want to provide back to the customers. Um, there's some resources that are out there. Um, we have some at the Internet Society under a, on our Deploy360 program. We have a section on TLS for applications that we're building out. I mentioned Uli Johansson. Anybody, uh, anybody familiar with Asterisk or Amelia will probably know of Uli. And he's got a number of different presentations up on SlideShare that walk through these issues around more crypto and more crypto for SID. And he goes into much greater detail than I had, I had time to do sort of here. So I just end, if you can, look at how you can use the TLS for the security, for strengthening the overall internet around against some of the levels of pervasive monitoring there. And because customers, people are looking for this. They're looking for this assurance that they'll have some level of privacy that are out there. Um, you know, anything we can do is a larger industry for TLS. And if you can, help look at what is with the day. And I know I stand before you and, and lunch, and I know Mark is signaling me back there to say, Dan, it's time to wrap up for lunch. But thank you very much to my address is York and ISOC.org. I'm here to help you folks 
My job is part of what I'm paid to do is to help look at how we help get this deployed. So if you're out there and you're looking at things, you're looking at how do we deploy TLS for SIP, and you're running into issues or you have questions or you just think it's crazy, please contact me. I'd like to talk to you to help you work things out and whatever else. All right. And with that, I'll say that on. Awesome. Thank you. And there you have it. That was my recording again in, in June 2014 at the SIPNOC 2014 event. Sadly, a whole, not a whole lot's changed in the intervening two years. Some of the drafts have been updated. Some of the pieces have moved along. So there has been progress along that. But there's a, still a good need for more TLS for SIP. Again, the slides can be found in the show notes or over on slideshare.net slash danyork. Thanks for listening. If you've got comments about this, please feel free to leave them here at soundcloud.com slash danyork or anywhere it's posted on social networks. And until another time, you can find more of my audio and writing at danyork.me. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.